0: Hello, good morning August welcome to Stachke Playback with me, Evelyn O'Rourke. And we start this morning with that sound. The sound that has caused such chaos across Cork in particular since Storm Babette paid us a visit this week. Rain and more rain and more rain causing shockwaves.
1: I actually can't find the words to describe it. We were standing inside in the cafe watching like a waterfall coming in over the floodgate. There was absolutely nothing we could do to stop it. I've never felt so helpless in all my life.
0: <laughs> Lisa O'Brien there from Monty's Cafe in Middleton as heard on Thursday's News at One. And over the last few days, the airways have been filled with heartbroken local residents and business owners describing their own experiences.
2: Flooding chaos in places across the county, Blackpool and North Keys in the city, along with Glenmire Passage West and Middleton in the county, saw some of the worst flooding in living memory.
0: Brian O'Connell joined Clare from Middleton on Thursday morning.
3: I'm here just off the main street and to my back are a number of homeowners who've just returned to their properties, which are completely
4: destroyed. Some of them embracing each other, quite emotional scenes. I turned down Connolly Street and I met one homeowner who was opening her front door.
5: So we're just walking in here now
4: into your front room. Uh, scene of utter devastation, yeah, isn't it? It's right. so your couch is flipped upside down. Still quite a lot of water on the you ground here. You can see, here. look,
6: the sediment after. A, that's how high it was.
4: Up over the TV stand. Yeah.
6: Just started coming in the back door. I grabbed everything I could. We're
3: just walking so through into, into your the kitchen. kitchen. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And obviously we're using our phones as lights because you've no electricity.
6: No, we had to turn the power off. As I said, it went up as far as the sockets and the fridge floated away and out the back then our kerosene.
4: So that really strong smell of kerosene was your oil tank, which the oil tank we can that. see was flipped upside down by the power of the water.
6: Yeah. Spilt everywhere. So the house is full of kerosene as well as everything else. How do you feel this morning? Upset. It's got it.
0: And later on the news at one, Pascal Chi heard from more of the local community. The scale
7: of the damage, it is substantial. And people have been in from very early this morning. I've been talking to uh, a number of business owners here in Middleton.
6: My name is Linda and um, We own Latratoria Main Street Middleton, a family restaurant. <laughs> devastating news for us today it came so fast people were inside having lunch the next minute came in the back door and it came in like a river
7: flood insurance
6: no
8: no flood insurance no
7: one no joe Rin and this is my wife's
9: business dakota it's a clothes shop on the main street in middleton we've been absolutely devastated and today we're here dealing with the aftermath we can't get skips in the town is in complete disarray
10: and we have no help we don't know what to do
0: and as business owners started counting the cost of the losses caused by the flooding, their questions began. Yep. And they want action, Minister, and they want specifics. What are they going to get and when are they going to get it? Minister for Finance Michael McGrath was on Morning Ireland on Friday, and he told Mary Wilson that help was on its way.
11: So we have a long-established uh, scheme. to support. It's administered by the Red Cross on behalf of the Irish government. When will
8: they get money in
11: their hands? From next week an initial 5,000 euro and then support of up to 20,000 euro following consideration of the scale of the damage given the scale of the devastation that we witnessed, uh, we do believe there will be a need to go further, which I expect will involve increased level of support. I think the 20,000 will go a long way, but for others it won't be enough. We have to make changes to the scheme in a manner that we can sustain those changes into the future, but uh, we did indicate clearly yesterday that there is a willingness to do that.
0: Later on in the gathering on Friday in Clareburn's studio, the panel discussed the flooding issue too and the ongoing planning processes involving the flood defence plans for Middleton. Ashling Maloney from the Daily Mail had this to say: "You know, they said to the T-shirt yesterday when he was there that they felt let down, and I think what they're communicating there is feeling let down on those two prongs: on the assistance that they need now due to the damage that they that they've experienced, and then they also feel let down because there wasn't the flood defences in. We know that the planning bill is going through; that's one of the biggest pieces of legislation the state will ever will ever go through the Oireachtas. But again, we can't say when that planning bill will come to fruition and actually start speeding things up, and why why weren't things, I suppose, progressing in a way that could have prevented some of these things? And that's where a lot of that frustration lies with government. These people
2: would have liked to have seen this not happen. Well, of course, absolutely. And Liam, I know you've been watching this very closely and you've been listening to people's lives and livelihoods, absolutely devastated. Do you
0: think the government response is reactionary? Yes.
10: I, I mean, it's reactionary in a positive sense in that they can do nothing else but react.
0: Liam Doran, former General Secretary of the Irish National Midwives Organisation, this.
10: I heard again this morning that we had a similar event in Middleton in 2015. I think they were promised flood defence within five years at that stage. We hear this morning that planning applications only going in the first quarter of next year. I think people living in Middleton and all those areas will just look at that and say you have to be kidding.
0: Then Neil Richmond, Minister of State, responded. Just to provide
10: Neil. some context because I don't disagree wholeheartedly with Liam
12: but we've got 53 of the 90 schemes that are planned. Each scheme is individually different and Middleton is probably the most difficult one and I'm not going to go into the engineering or the geologicals of it. There are other schemes that didn't require as much detailed preparation and this is serious work. This isn't a government decision. This is making sure the application is right and equally others that didn't get the level but of engagement but Neil, or But can, can I tell you what,
2: what I hear and what I think listeners Will hear is that the government is saying, sorry, we are a victim of the planning system. No, no, this this isn't what I'm
12: saying. What I'm saying is every single flood screen is different. But you gave yourself
2: five years in 2015.
12: We gave ourselves five years in 2015. We've put all the resources in place and we're going to be delayed. But of course, we've made many other flood schemes have been able to go through as well. And the flooding that we didn't see yesterday in other towns that were equally affected, you know, people being on, on site so quickly in Glanmire, having the fences in place in Douglas and Tower, they would have happened in 2015 if these schemes hadn't been in place. You have to get this right.
0: Across in the Middle East. The raw horrors of war have been laid bare on our airwaves again this week.
12: Taking the ground invasion first, we
4: still don't know when it's going to come, but the signs are ominous.
0: With RTE's Paul Cunningham
4: reporting from the region. That it will come. The Defence Minister, Gallant, told infantry troops yesterday that they would see the inside of Gaza and Jordan's predicting the worst outcome for Gaza. In other words, that there will be a ground war. I think just looking at the television and listening to the radio, Israel is still talking about how 1,400 of its citizens were killed by Hamas and more than 4,000 injured. While the international media has moved on to talk about Gaza, and humanitarian aid. And this is a country which is still grieving, which is still focused on what happened and that resolve they have that this can never happen again, that this was their 9-11. And from the people I speak to on the streets, they um, are firm in the view that while they feel for the people in Gaza, that breaking the back of mass is something that has to happen. And the only way that can actually transpire is if they put boots on the ground.
0: As heard on Friday's Morning Ireland and the heartbreaking stories from right across the Middle East continued on our radios this week. Tuesday's blast at the hospital in Gaza was a major talking point, with controversy continuing around the circumstances for it. Back here at home, the Church of Ireland Archbishop of Dublin, Michael Jackson, joined Brian Dobson on the News at One, outlining how his community has a particular connection with that hospital.
10: I think, I suppose, goes back to 2014, Uh, a number of us visited that whole region and spent two nights and three days in Gaza. That gave us the opportunity um, to meet people in the hospital and people living in Gaza. We asked what we could do to help, and what we eventually ended up doing was the refurbishment of on-call facilities and the installation of solar panels. You might say What is that all about? It's actually providing power to the hospital to do its work because on a regular basis, there are blackouts and the power drops. And and as you rightly say, a hospital that's under the umbrella of the Anglican Diocese, it is for everybody.
12: Yeah.
4: So when news of this attack came through and the the hundreds of casualties, it, it was all the more shocking.
10: Oh, yeah. It was devastating because... Very much uh, people of this diocese had taken the al akhli Arab Hospital to their heart. And it's not all about raising money, it's about connections. And one of the things that has consistently been said to me, the really important thing that you give to us is ongoing and consistent friendship.
0: On Thursday evening, Dr. Margaret Harris, public health doctor with the World Health Organization, spoke to Sarah McInerney from Gaza.
13: You say the time is running out for vulnerable people and fuel
0: is virtually all gone in Gaza. So that must be replaced. That is absolutely critical. There is one hospital that has already had to transfer its patients because they ran out of fuel. Other hospitals are scrounging it wherever they can. But you cannot deliver a baby safely if there are no lights on. It's stitching up
14: somebody, whether you're doing it in the corridor or in an operating theatre, you need light. It's absolutely critical that that fuel be delivered.
0: And back in Morning Ireland, a former advisor to both the Israeli and Palestinian governments from the International Communities Organisation had this to say.
13: You talk of a Belfast moment for the Middle East. What do you mean?
15: There is a time when we are so traumatized by the events around us that we stand up, civilian citizens, not our governments because they're blind and incapable of doing this, but citizens stand up and say no more. We want to change what we've been doing for decades, praying maybe in Belfast for hundreds of years and start a genuine peace process. And that's what we need to see happen here. And I emphasize not with our governments, Our governments are responsible for bringing us to where we are. Our government in Israel is responsible for believing and convincing our people that we can occupy other people and expect to live in peace or keep 2.5 million people in Gaza in an open-air prison and expect to have quiet On the Palestinian side, they need to come to the realization that the Jewish people are here living in their ancient homeland. And that has to be reckoned with as well, and that every person living between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea must have the same right to the same rights. And that's the basis for beginning to start a new future with new dreams and new hopes and new realities and new leaders who have to emerge and come to the front and center when this catastrophe is finished
0: as heard on Wednesday's Morning Ireland. Talk to a rash A couple of now, mate. Full to rash. Evelyn O'Rourke here. Now, earlier this week, Liveline had a very, 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 very special caller on the line. Here's a clue. I
16: tumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition And yawn and stretch and try to come to life
0: and Katie, who's currently on live line duty, was only thrilled to be taking the call.
8: Now we have a very special show for you today. Um, you have to be—you have to uh, be prepared for everything. You never know who you're going to hear on the live line. Never in my wildest dreams did I imagine I would ever get to say good afternoon, Dolly Parton.
16: <laughs> well, good afternoon to you. I've got a lot of things to talk about and I guess we can just catch up on several things and people we know.
0: Last week, it was Daniel O'Donnell. This week, Dolly Parton. Katie is becoming the real queen of country. And like all the best callers on Liveline, Dolly didn't disappoint.
8: Can I talk a bit about your style then? Because um, you've been preserving your outfits right from way back to the early days.
16: Yes, that's true. My best friend, Judy Ogle, who's been my best friend since we were in grammar school. After we got out of school, she came to work with me. And so we traveled all over the world together all, all the years that I've been in the business. And she just started collecting everything, keeping everything and saying, someday you're going to have a museum. And so sure enough, I did at Dollywood. And then somebody said, well, you had your song teller book, which was all about your songwriting. And well, why don't you do one about your clothes? Because that chronicles your life in costumes. And so that's where the idea came from. And we started pulling all these great pictures. So it's really an emotional book. It's very fun to to read it's very fun to look at just seeing how all the crazy ways i've looked since i started at 10 years old back home in Sevier county tennessee my hometown singing on local radio and television and at the fairgrounds when the fair came to town and journeys that i've taken with other people as well
8: can i talk now about uh, your dad because i know your dad had a huge influence on you but for a very important reason.
16: Well, my dad helped me start the Imagination Library.
0: Dolly Parton's philanthropy is well recognised and part of her legacy is the Imagination Library, where thousands of children receive free books and the books have even made it to Ireland.
16: Which is my literacy programme, where we give books to children from the time they're born, they get a book once a month until they start school. That way they can learn to read. My dad wasn't able to read and write, because he grew up in a bigger family than I did, and Daddy you know, grew up in those rural areas. So I got him involved with me, and dang if it didn't turn out to be worldwide now. And Daddy got to live long enough to see being so prosperous and hearing the kids call me the book lady. And my dad was really smart. Daddy had a lot of great ideas. And so uh, I'm so proud of that whole program. We've given over 215 million books away.
8: Unbelievable. 213 million books and over 200,000 of those books were given away to children in Ireland, Dolly. I mean, it's an incredible achievement. Like, what a legacy to leave.
16: I'm as proud of that as anything I've ever done. I'm sure that'll be one of the things I hope to be remembered for.
0: Sandra, a caller to Liveline, spoke to Dolly.
17: I don't
8: think I could express how thankful I am for receiving that gift Sandra, what age is your daughter? Yeah, she's three she's going to be four in December she kind of figured out she's getting posts it's in her name it's personal to her when she started getting them first she'd read them upside down point out the pictures look at the colours now she has all her books in a little corner and she's a little chair over there so she loves getting them There's no words to describe how thankful we are for what she's done.
16: Well, you said it pretty good. I have to say that touches my heart because that's what I hope to do. And I I know the little kids do love it. Like you said, it's personal to them. And I think if it's got their name on it, they're going to get that little book and they're going to make somebody sit down with them to help them yeah, read exactly, what the words yeah. I have oh, four okay. children and
8: she's my youngest. But my other three weren't that into books. I, I picked them up here and there, but they just weren't into them. Whereas I think she's more into them because of that.
16: Well, that's the book lady. They love, the, <laughs> they love <Yeah>. that. that <laughs> way they, you are they the book I'm, lady. I'm the book lady. And you tell her that the book lady said, a very special hello.
17: Oh, thank you.
0: Oh, just one more blast. I can't resist. The icon, Dolly Parton there. And as she told Katie during their wonderful chat, she uses her songs to tell stories and such powerful stories. And it's the power of storytellers that threaded through the week on Radio 1. On Sunday Miscellany, where the best storytellers often lurk, writer Vincent Woods was reading one of his poems for their special show from the Iron Mountain Festival in County Leitrim. This made me laugh.
11: I'm sure many of you know the wonder of Crian's just down the street and how great a night there can be with music and song and dancing and chat and all the rest. Liam is such a great host and talker and uh, I've had many great nights there. <laughs> he told me this story one night and I just had to turn it into a poem. How could one not? But it's, you know, it's Liam Crian really that I credit for this but I gave it a title. Beckett on a Boreen. Two men going home this night. One points to the sky. The sun, he says. The moon, says the other. No, the sun. The moon. The sun. The moon. The effin' sun. No, the feckin' moon. Moon, sun, sun, moon. And they lay into each other and tumble into the ditch, fightin' and flailin'. Another man comes by in his bike, stops, looks down at them, and they see him and pounce and pull him in, point up, sun or moon, and it's more like a threat than a question. Oh Jesus, lads! He says, I wouldn't know. Sure, I'm not from around here. <laughs>
0: Called Beckett on a Boharine, what a title. Later that morning, Miriam O'Callaghan celebrated the latest accolade for a woman who has devoted her life to bringing those writers' words to life on the stage. Miriam was joined by Druid Theatre's Gary Hines, who has just been named Best Director at the UK Theatre Awards. For Druid O'Casey, the incredibly ambitious staging of three O'Casey plays in one day. Hi there, Gary. How
8: are you? How are you, Miriam? Do you like that recognition? I mean, you deserve it, but do you you
14: cherish it? I do. Of course I cherish it. I value anything. In particular with this, for me, with Sean O'Casey, the fact that we performed at Belfast was very important to us all.
8: Gary, remind
14: people, will you, where did you grow up? Tell me about your family. Well, I grew up in two different places. I was born in Balletery County Roscommon my mother's native place and we left there when I was about seven or eight went to Monaghan for about five years and then finally came to rest in Galway which is my father's <laughs> native place we've been there since.
8: And how did you go from school into what you do now like what was your trajectory?
14: Like fallen off log really <laughs> in the sense that i went into college i was joined drama started doing plays rather than studying myself and marie mullen and a few other people mm. decided we wanted to go on doing plays when we left college so we just did that really and uh, i've never done anything else thank god or not i don't know
8: but you've always remained Very successful, Gary. And it's not an easy business, actually. Why do you think you've managed to do that?
14: Well, I think in founding a a theatre, however audacious that it seemed, in founding a theatre that was in Galway, not in Dublin, in the mid-70s, there was a need for that. And I think then the relationships that we created amongst ourselves right from the very beginning and then with successive generations of actors as we went, True, i think that also became important and then finally really you have to try and do very good work you have to be really serious about it and at times it was tough but oh. at the best of times it's not it's it's great and thankfully with the Ocaseys, this is one of those times
0: and more powerful words too from one of our most celebrated writers claire keegan
9: Hello and welcome to this arena special with writer Claire Keegan, live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleera.
0: <laughs> the conversation followed many topics, including these insights into her latest story.
9: So late in the day is your latest book, Claire. It follows Cahill, a kind of a civil servant type of guy, clock watching, it has to be said, <laughs> certainly. And there's a sense of tension f- from the very start here. How did this story come about?
6: How did it come about? One of my students said, can you give us an example of the difference between drama and tension? And I said, well, I'll try. And I drew up this kind of narrative on the board about a a fellow who gets out of work on a Friday evening and waits for the bus. And I said, well, is there anything wrong with that? And they said, well, no, not really. I said, well, there isn't. I'm just telling you, there isn't anything wrong with that. (laughs) (coughs) Because we've got a when, where, and who, which is a good start to a story. And uh, he takes the bus home, and he sits too close to a woman on the bus. And it just kind of generates some kind of tension and then he went home and the cat was missing and there was a moment of tension there and, and then he, he sits down with his macaroni and cheese out of the freezer and sits watching a documentary on Lady Diana and he doesn't know why he's doing that because he's never held any interest whatsoever in the royal family and he just can't understand this so I can't understand this of course too why I generated a piece of tension out of that and then I said well what if we call this story wedding day? And this was the day when this man was supposed to have been married. So that changes and puts a different colour on everything that happened in the day. Also, he's so tight, he, he still goes into work. You know, he's a dull civil servant and deeply <laughs> dishonest. It's, it's funny, but you can make a story out of anything if there's tension in it.
9: So he has fiancee She's a French woman, isn't she, called Sabine? She is. And An brief. Irish
0: woman might have married him. <laughs> So family life is central to so much of Claire Keegan's writings. And over in the History Show, there was another example of how your family life impacts on you as an adult.
12: Mount Everest, May 29th, 1953.
0: Mark McMenamin was reporting on a major anniversary, 70 years since Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay both reached the summit of Mount Everest. And on the show, Mark spoke to Peter Hillary, Edmund's son, about this great adventure.
12: On the morning of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, the ninth expedition to attempt to reach the summit of the Great Mountain finally succeeds. This is Peter Hillary, son of Sir Edmund Hillary.
5: It was one of those big events that really liberated every single one of us. One of the wonderful things about 1953, there was Europe at the end of the Second World War, a very damaged place after the appalling fighting that had gone on over those previous seven years. And the message, of course, took five days to get from my father in Tenzing to the team to be relayed down to the British Embassy in Kathmandu. Mount Everest is a big, difficult and dangerous mountain. If you fall, you will die. You'll be flying through the air at terminal velocity.
12: The fact that many people died trying to reach the summit was very much in the mind of Peter's father. Here he is speaking in 1977.
5: I think my first reaction was now sort of ecstatic feeling at all. There was certainly a deep and quiet satisfaction, but I also had a feeling of almost surprise. Well, here was old Ed Hillary on top of Everest, you know, it was almost hard to believe. And I can remember this feeling of slight astonishment, actually. And so as I approached the summit of Mount Everest on my first climb, way back in 1990, it just started going through my oxygen-deprived, slightly hypoxic mind that this is what it was like for them. All of the stories really came to life in my mind but of course the big difference is that they were going into the unknown I knew that it had to be possible for me to get there if I was able to dig deep just the way they did.
0: And another great adventure that will live long in the memory is the Irish rugby team's experience in the World Cup. This time last week we woke up gearing up for our quarter final match against New Zealand but by bedtime it was all over and the fans are still reeling. On Thursday morning, Des Cahill made that clear.
15: By the way, I don't know if you saw, in France, the TV audience for the Ireland-New Zealand game was the largest audience in France ever for a match that didn't feature the host nation. I still find it hard to talk about it. Marcus (laughs) Smith is set to
0: be... And back to the night itself. Michael Corkin, who must have been hoarse all week, he managed to grab a few minutes with Peter Mahoney shortly after the match. So, how was Peter feeling?
18: Incredible test match. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we've come off the the worst side of it but you know I've said over a hugely proud of the group you know that a special group of people you know it's uh, it's tough to take you know we planned a longer journey than this in in this competition we got to be proud of, of, of what we delivered over the last few years and you know it's an end of an era and you know, Andy said inside, we should be very proud of ourselves, and we'll figure out. 24 hours time, there's
15: worst things going on around the world, and what's happened this evening to us. Players who are finishing up, the likes of Johnny Sexton, Keith Earls, and it's kind of hard. Here we are, less than an hour after a match, to pay tribute to people who've contributed so much to the green shirt that you've on your back.
18: Yeah, never everlasting mark. Those kind of people leaving at Johnny and, and Earlsy. The two of them have changed rugby in Ireland. Uh, without a shadow of a doubt, the quality, the talent, but above all the people there, I'll miss playing alongside them.
0: Emotions running high, and back on Ray Darcy on Tuesday, another emotional interview.
9: Now we have Jen and Andres in studio with us. Good afternoon to you both. Good
1: afternoon, Good afternoon, Ray.
0: As Ray Darcy welcomed Jen and Andres into studio, Andres, who's 43 years of age, moved here from Argentina and has been living in Dublin for 20 years. A business consultant and marathon runner, he and his wife Jen have a busy family life. And then a diagnosis in April threw everything up in the air.
9: Well, let's find out about the 2E first before we get into the, the, the health part of it. Uh, how did you meet? <laughs> <laughs> you, you go with
1: that. Well, 20 years ago, is it? 20, 21 20, years 20, ago 20 now. We uh, were in our t- country, early yeah. 20s and uh, Andres was over in Ireland to learn English for a year And we met. I didn't think it would last very long because he was going back. But uh, a few months later, (laughs) he was at Dublin airport with my mum and we were all crying and, you know, dropping him off. And then I went over for a year. Loved the country, loved it. uh, Learned Spanish and ended up getting very serious with each other. And uh, then he came back and got married and two kids, (laughs) three dogs, two cats.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So a lovely busy home with their two sons Leo and Alex. But gradually the marathon runner had begun to notice some physical problems and then the diagnosis of motor neuron disease.
9: The diagnosis was it a gradual thing a dawning. It was gradual in as much that
18: because of all the activity that I was doing I've been always very aware of whatever niggle I had like that I was running and I felt something. And so I had been noticing things happening. Uh, In my case, it started through my hands getting cramped uh, and numb. It was like maybe it's carpal tunnel. Fortunately, unfortunately, I don't know whichever way you want to look at it. Like The fact that I grew up with my parents being doctors and aware of things, I was able to bounce ideas with them having very close friends with MS. We were aware of the symptoms, and so the great news was that it wasn't MS.
5: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's humour there. <laughs> yeah.
18: Look on the bright side. <laughs> so we made it kind of simple to the neurologist. We just basically... its not It wasn't even me, it was her. That, that basically asked point blank, like, so you think it's MND? And he said... I say... It doesn't look good. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: A diagnosis of MND is frightening for all the family and Andres and Jen spoke so openly about this
1: sometimes we've cried a lot and, and then at the end we'll start laughing about something you know we we'll just <laughs> so um. we try to pull ourselves back we went to Spain and we did the last 100k because Andres always wanted to do the Camino and I said now is the time so my mum and my aunt came and looked after the boys we walked those walked those steps and we wore the t-shirt of the IMNDA and, and we just we talked we laughed we were silent we cried and we just felt you know I just feel so grateful that I met Andrés and even if I don't have that much many more years with him I wouldn't change it because God, God. he is everything to me and I'm so privileged to be able to, to walk this walk with him.
0: The interview ended with Ray clearly moved by this beautiful couple and he wasn't the only one wiping away tears at the end.
1: He's he's amazing.
18: There is a thing that is, but like the reality is everywhere, everywhere. Like uh, Ever since. sport is there. Yeah. Friends, people Kindness I haven't
1: seen in years. Are
18: wow. everywhere. everywhere. Kindness Jesus. is everywhere.
9: Yeah. Um, uh, thanks so much for coming in. Before you go, Maria has been on. What an amazing couple. I wish them well in every way and they're the essence of love. Which comes <gasps> thank through you. With their story. <laughs> thank you so right, much. I, yeah, I don't know about you. I, I have to take a break. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay,
0: thank again couple to Arash Now, are you properly awake or are you kind of half listening to us? You know, have you hit the snooze button on repeat? I mean, it is a Saturday morning after all and there is nothing wrong with a bit of snooze button action. Even the boffins agree.
7: According to new research, snoozing through your alarm and nodding off for more sleep is not a bad thing.
0: Professor Annie Curtis from the RCSI walked Cormac through the research on drive time.
7: This is good news for me, I can tell you. Tell us what this research and, is saying. I tell you, absolutely. It was
19: good news for me as well. I was having a snooze when your researcher called me this afternoon. But this, we're talking about the snoozing in the morning. So hitting the snooze button multiple times. Up to 70% of us.
7: <laughs> but I thought it was a bad thing to do, Annie.
19: And most people would think that it would affect the quality of your sleep. But actually, the research says differently. They took those into the lab and then they actually had those people either wake up at one time or snooze for 30 minutes, which is kind of about the time that we do it, don't we? Mm. And then what they looked at was their cognitive function. So basically how well they can think, how well they can function. The individuals who snoozed actually had higher cognitive function
7: than those who didn't. I thought it depended on where in the sleep cycle you wake
19: One of the things that that, um, helps the snoozers is that it doesn't bolt you out of like that deep sleep. So it allows you to sort of gradually step up out of that deep sleep. But what they found out in this study was that night owls, which kind of makes more sense, you know, are much more likely to snooze because they're the individuals who tend to have a later body clock. Younger people tend to be more snoozers. And I would say this study, the average age was 27. So it's quite a young cohort.
7: Well, I'll tell you, Professor Annie Curtis, you're full of good news for us. on a really wet
19: (laughs) autumnal day. To snooze in tomorrow morning now and do they up over (laughs) your
0: ears. Now that is the kind of data that I can really appreciate but it wasn't the only place where programmes were shifting through insightful data. No siree. If you haven't been too busy hitting the snooze button you may have heard that this week marks the 50th anniversary of our membership of the EU or the EEC as it was back then in 1973. And to celebrate the CSO gave out champagne in the form of some wild statistics, which of course is much more exciting.
9: CSO, the Central Statistics Office, has been looking back at the Ireland of 1973 compared with the Ireland of 2023. Nice thing to do.
0: And Ray was in his element, going through the numbers and the memories from the time.
9: How has the country changed in those five decades? Well, let's answer this question with Colette Keane. And she's in the Central Statistics Office. Hello, Colette.
0: Hi, Ray. Throughout their fascinating discussion, Ray played clips from the archives to illustrate the piece. And this report that he played from the RT archives in 1973, it's about older people. It's fairly cheerful, upbeat, inspiring stuff.
4: It's very easy to be emotional about older people. The trouble is that much of what we know from research on the subject suffers from a basic lack of knowledge about the aged in general. The result is that a number of popular assumptions and myths have grown up in the public mind. It is now a generally widespread belief that most old people are in poor health. It is believed that most old people want to continue to work and that most old people are living in poverty. These are half-truths. The real picture is far more complicated, but the result of that type of thinking is that the over 65s are looked upon as a large but separate section of the population whose basic
9: needs are simple. I'd like to think that has changed.
17: (laughs) I would think so. (laughs) That has definitely changed because as we're living longer, we're also enjoying better quality of older age, you know. Population, huge change. So the population of Ireland was just under 3 million in 1972, which was the the census closest to to the period that we're looking at. Mm. Whereas in 2022, it was over 5.1 million.
9: And we're getting married older as well.
17: Yeah, you know, the age of brides and grooms had changed significantly over that 50-year period. So the average age of a groom is about 27 years, now 37. Brides, just under 25 years of age. And in 2022, the average age of a bride was over 35, so 35.4 years for females. In 1973, the percentage of Catholic ceremonies that took place on the island was 96%, whereas by 2022, that had fallen to 42%.
9: And the names, and John was the, the <laughs> most popular name back then. Yeah,
17: that's another way to kind of track societal changes is by, you know, looking at the trends in baby names. So John and Mary would have been the most popular names in Ireland in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and it didn't really change until the 1990s. In 1973, there were... A lot. <laughs> <laughs> there were 2,400 boys called John, Yeah. whereas in 2022, it was 36. Wow.
0: In Oliver Cannon's studio too, the anniversary hadn't gone unnoticed.
7: We were still eating stews twice a week and the one and one from the chipper on a Friday. We were all looking at Dallas. Avocado bathrooms became the height of sophistication. Getting engaged on your 21st birthday was very popular.
0: And it wasn't long until calls about the avocado green bathrooms started coming in. Now they're probably going to be back in in a few years time. Of course, a nation says bitterly thinking back to the price of that skip years ago. But anyway, things may have been better in the old days.
7: But how about this from one of our listeners Memories of 1973 Warts on fingers Smoking upstairs on the bus Mixed with the scent of sweat and smoke No central heating
0: Lynn rang in to Oliver She was having a ball 50 years ago
7: Lynn Riley, good morning to you
0: Good morning, Oliver I was hitchhiking around Europe, Oliver Oh In 1973, yeah
7: What was that like? Fantastic I was gone for nearly four months. No problem with getting lifts. We weren't nervous. Nothing like that. We just hitched around everywhere. We started off in Germany. We went to a job as chambermaids and we hated that, so we left after one week. Over to Greece, stayed in youth hostels. You were one of the cool young ones fifty years ago. I
0: was. And another woman who's been having a ball a little more recently is the irrepressible Anony Launa.
19: Number 99, the blunt-jawed nomad bee. Number 100, the ivy bee. And number 101, the hairy-footed
0: flower bee. She is still recovering from successfully naming Irish bees on Mooney Goes Wild on Monday nights. But Derek was even more excited than Aina too about this.
7: So, Aina, you are absolutely fantastic. Everybody's been texting in and calling in and shouting in and stopping me on the street, asking me, does she really know all 101 bee species? Or was it just a bit of magic?
17: Well, of course I know all 101 species.
0: I struggle to remember my own name some days, so fair play to her.
17: But the last one, the hairy-footed flower bee, that really intrigued people and got them going. This one was only discovered, you will remember, in 2023 in Harold's Cross, in the parish next to where I am. You were thinking of a bee with hairy feet and a flower bee. We were down to see it myself. It was actually the front of a row of houses where there was what other people might rudely describe as weeds, a whole lot of brassicas that had, had yellow flowers on them. And the, so we can't wait till next spring to see, will the hairy-footed flower bee come? back
3: but i'm curious particularly
11: what is it about the hairy feet why do they need these hairy feet
17: they say the hairs on their legs certainly on the females are what they have them as pollen baskets and they bring the pollen back to the nest because as you know bees collect pollen to feed their young and then they connect nectar to make honey for themselves the pollen baskets on the legs are specially adapted hairs that are able to carry the pollen Richard even got in on the act.
9: (laughs) Richard, you've got hairy feet.
11: Well, I wouldn't say they're especially hairy. Hair is a very important thing, you know. I wonder about it, uh, why we lost it so readily. Probably so that we could cool down, rather, in the sun. To lose our hair was a great thing. We could go out in the midday sun. Mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. And we could sweat. That's the great thing. Perspiration would evaporate from our bodies and cool us down. Of course, there was a downside. We could get bitten by all kinds of creatures. Shave your toes, Richard.
0: (laughs) As heard on Mooney Goes Wild. And as Derek and the team remind us every week, the natural world is a strange and wonderful thing. Not that vet Eamon O'Connell needs to be told that.
2: As anyone who works with cattle will tell you, they are curious animals. Sometimes they are a little bit too curious. Well, Eamon O'Connell is a vet with Summerhill Vet Clinic in Nina in County Tipperary. Eamon goes by the name of the Moo Vet.
0: He joined Clare Byrne on Tuesday to discuss a life in cows. Seriously, he loves cows. And it turns out that cows are sports mad, are just very simple creatures.
3: They're creatures of habit, Claire, so they spend a lot of their time just around the field, minding their own business. They pick something up in their mouth and they have a smell of it.
2: You were called out to a farmer. It was the morning of the All-Ireland hurling final. So what was wrong with the animal?
3: I was just having the breakfast and he said, offending animal, the heifer in question, had a swelling on the side of her jaw and he was... Obviously, you have a couple of things in your mind. I was wondering, was it going to be an abscess on her tooth? or We went and we had a look in her mouth. I suppose as soon as I had a look in her mouth, I realised that it was none of the things I thought of. I could see the slitter poking out from the back of her teeth where it was stuck. What happens with cows or animals is when they pick up something, they don't really have the, the response to spit it out. So they kind of keep chewing until it's either gone. But in this case, she tried to chew and it just popped between her, keeping her gum, should I say, and just stuck there right at the back of her mouth.
2: Could you get the hand in to try and pull that out? Or is that something that's too dangerous to do?
3: We have a piece of gear. It's a small small little thing called a drink water gag well keeps their teeth upper and lower separated to be honest it was easy enough to dislodge it then because it, it was wedged in there but it wasn't jammed so it was once I got my fingers on it a little bit of a, a pry in it popped out and even the slitter wasn't too damaged I think the kids were, were taking it off to have a pucker hunting later on
2: So she hadn't even had a chew on it before it got lodged Not really. Now is that common that you'd have the slithers getting because I'd imagine there's a fair few of them where you are in tip
3: there is, yeah. There's, yeah, They're more hurling oriented than football oriented. Even the farmer said to me, he goes, oh, thank God it wasn't the football. And <laughs> his opinion is football is for hurlers of bad eyesight. That's how they, that's how they view <laughs> football in, fair, no. in Tipperary. They're more of a hurling country. Yeah.
0: Claire Byrne there clearly enjoying that moving chat. Meanwhile, back on the nine o'clock show, Oliver Callan was celebrating another anniversary from the movies. I'll stop now. Lyric FM's Agent Gormley from movies and musicals didn't do it. Joined Oliver in studio on Monday morning to discuss 100 years of Disney.
7: In the United States, a 21-year-old young man and his brother set up an animation studio in the back room of a real estate office on this very day, exactly 100 years ago. They called it the Disney Brothers Cartoon Studio.
0: They had a great old chat and the music flowed.
7: Here's Walt Disney as Mickey Mouse, the now iconic sound of the mouse. Hurry up,
13: Beautifully high pitched,
3: yeah.
7: (laughs) Because he was a a heavy smoking kind of. You you wonder where that voice came out of. Yeah. Snow White. So that was the first kind of movie, the the first first, Disney movie.
13: Yeah, the first full length. And Snow White, this extraordinary voice of Adriana Casalotti, this soprano, high high voice. I think it's extraordinary, isn't it? It really is.
7: This is someday my prince will come. Yes. And I love the scratchy, kind of dusty sound. It's gorgeous, isn't it? And how long it's lasted. grown woman. I know. <laughs> there's, no, there's no effect uh, on the After,
13: And the, He followed it up then with Pinocchio in, in 1940
7: and... Not creepy at all. Not think. creepy
13: at all <laughs> and has been made several times since. When You Wish Upon a Star comes from Pinocchio and that became of course the, the theme song. Yes. And those days then were, were kind of tricky Oliver because war was breaking out and so mm. you know there was a little bit of a halt to production but Bambi came out Dumbo came out and then... During it, the war years? Yeah during yeah. the war years during the, the early 40s. The biggie then was actually Fantasia which was this incredible project because he wanted wanted to use several pieces of classical music with animation. But really the comeback was 1950 and that was Cinderella. And this was the one that really made him money again. Songs like Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo and A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes and So This Is Love. So all those, are those gorgeous songs and that was the big comeback.
7: Let's have a listen.
0: Aidan Gormley there with Oliver Callens celebrating 100 years of Disney. Over on Lyric FM, Spotlight 2 on another entertainment legend.
20: Today we honour the Queen of Soul and a muse of mine, Aretha Franklin.
0: As part of Black History Month, singer Toshin paid tribute. To the one and only Aretha Franklin.
20: Through her music, Aretha Franklin told us her story, her battle against racial injustice and the power of womanhood, the blind ecstasy of love and the devastation of heartbreak. Her music speaks about who we are and what we go through. Her music is our music.
0: During the piece, she went back to Aretha's roots and traced her development as an artist.
20: Aretha Franklin was born in Memphis into a highly influential family. As a younger teenager, Franklin was making a name for herself, active on the gospel music circuit and performing at gospel programmes in major cities throughout the country, tutored by none other than the gospel royalty Mahela Jackson and Clara Ward.
0: Well, Sinewem wem be the kind Sloan you
1: yeah.